Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario will move into stage three of its reopening plan five days ahead of schedule. However, just last week, the province's top doc had been adamant about not opening early. So what changed? A motion to remove the Sir John A. Macdonald statue from Gore Park in downtown Hamilton is once again defeated by Hamilton City Councillors. Does that move us any closer to truth and reconciliation here in Hamilton? And three Indigenous women made some major moves in politics last week. Former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Some surprising news at the end of last week uh, when it was announced that Ontario is going to enter step three of the reopening plan. And, uh, well, it was a bit fascination because of what's going on in some of the previous announcements. Global's Dave Woodard has the details. The province will move to step three of the roadmap to reopen on Friday, July 16th. And with that, gyms, movie theaters, and concert venues will be allowed to reopen with capacity limits and some other safety measures that won't be going anywhere anytime soon, according to Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore. Face coverings in indoor public settings and physical distancing requirements remain in place throughout Step 3. In addition to indoor venues reopening, there will also be expanded outdoor limits. Up to 100 people can now gather safely outside, while up to 15,000 will be able to attend an outdoor event if it's a seated venue. And that's not all. The timeline also makes mention of a return to relative normal if we can reach a vaccination target of 75% of eligible Ontarians having two doses by August 6th. Dave Woodard, Global News. It's the timing, I guess, more than anything else that I think surprised an awful lot of people. Joining us to talk about this and uh, the reaction to it and, of course, uh, what this means going down the road is uh, Ryan Imgren, biostatistician, of course, who's been uh, crunching the numbers for us uh, through this pandemic and giving us some sort of idea as to where we stand. Ryan, good to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You've been looking at this for a long time right now. Are you comfortable with the decision? Yeah, I'll be honest. I am comfortable with the decision. Um, I mean, I'm comfortable now seeing the numbers these last one or two days. I don't know if I wouldn't if I would have been confident enough on the Friday to say 100%. Let's go ahead. But the weekend has passed. We have been able to assess the previous week's data, see what impact Canada Day had, see what impact Stage Two had, and while like growth has. Or sorry, while like decline has slowed, it's not declining as fast. It's still declining. So absolutely, I think the data does support moving to stage three a little bit faster. The reason I'm asking is because I'm not trying to, I guess just to play the other side here, you could probably be also making an argument not to do this based on that. As you say, the, the, the sl- rate of decrease has slowed, the rate of vaccinations apparently has slowed, and that's kind of troubling uh, if we're trying to reach that, that magic number that they keep talking about. But uh, I, this is a new medical officer of health, and he seems to be taking a different perspective on this. He does, and I know like Kingston has done very, very well throughout this whole entire pandemic, even when the rest of Ontario had extremely high numbers. Um, we did have, you know, the Kingston suffer a few setbacks. Um, they had a nail salon outbreak once, but it was contact traced so well that within one week, we didn't really see any secondary or like, tertiary cases from it. Um, so we have seen what was done in Kingston was very, very successful. And I'll be honest, I do have a lot of faith in this chief medical officer of health. Um, as I said, you know, seeing what he's done in um, the Kingston, he's, you know, been very, very responsible. He's been very, very proactive. There were a lot of, you know, like tweets, which his public health unit would do before major gathering dates, such as St. Patty's Day, and say, look, we know it's St. Patty's Day, but you shouldn't be gathering, even though, you know, A, B, and C are true. So we 
saw them be very, very proactive. And obviously that was a like top-down approach. So I think he did very, very well in Kingston and he seems to have a strong start here in Ontario. That's one of the things that I found surprising about this, because you're absolutely right, as we've talked about through the course of this uh, 18 months or so, it seems like now. Uh, Dr. Morgan Kingston was on the edge all the time. He was not playing this as a small-c conservative uh, uh, medical officer. He thought, look, we can't be aggressive about this, but you know, we don't have to shut everything down. And I, I guess he's, he's taking that same sort of uh, an attitude now uh, toward the rest of the province, and, and we'll have to wait and see how things go. With that in mind, though, every time we do something like this, there is usually some kind of a spike. Do you anticipate seeing an increase, a slight increase? Yeah, I do. I think we are going to see a slight increase, possibly um, with cases in around a week and a half now, um, usually because that's about how long it takes, um, or sorry, a, a week and a half following that reopening. Um, what I find typically occurs um, is it does take around, once again, seven to ten days cases to increase a little bit and we've always seen a little uptick at the start of stage one at the start of stage two when we remove the stay-at-home order you always see a little uptick right away right at the start um, but then it usually settles down a little bit so i do think we are going to see a little bit of growth i don't think it'll be considerable and then i do think we are going to go back down um, to maybe not a decline we may just, you know, like plateau, but hopefully in around two weeks, we're at around 100 cases. And I think it's acceptable if we're plateauing at around 100 cases. I'd still like to see zero cases, but if we know that our healthcare system can handle 100 cases per day, um, then I think we should be good to stick with that stage three as long as possible. I remember one of the quotes from uh, the previous medical officer, Dr. Williams, uh, and this was early uh, in, in this past year here, uh, where he was talking about the vaccination rates. And I guess this was also at the time when vaccines were, well, uh, not readily available, I guess, to all of us. But he he made a statement there that, I, that really caught my ear. He said, you can't vaccinate your way out of a pandemic. And, and take that for what it was worth in that time, in that place. But where we are now with the percentage of people that have been vaccinated, can we vaccinate our way out of this now? Yeah, I think we already have. Um, I think back then it was, I think, more referring to that third wave. And it was the fact that we weren't rolling out vaccines fast enough to be able to stop the variant growth at that time. What we are seeing now is that we are seeing variant growth, but we're seeing vaccination happen much, much faster. So really what we're seeing is, my guess is that without these vaccinations, we would have definitely 100% um, either not seen the third wave like half the way that it did, or we would have seen a fourth wave here in Ontario. But the fact that we have been vaccinating at a record pace throughout our country is the only reason why we're still seeing a decline in cases even though the variant is actually taking over. And the variant of the variant that we heard about, uh, I guess, about a week and a half or so ago. Now, that's out on the horizon. I guess that's not here just yet, but they are talking about it. Dr. Bogash and, and others, Dr. Uni, have mentioned that. Is that a concern? It is. I think we always have to monitor these other variants. I don't think we need to jump on and, you know, and you know, worry about them excessively and be very, very proactive in terms of what we do about it until we start to see cases of it. Um, or even in, even until we start to see cases in our like close neighbors. Once we start to see it, we jump to other countries, then we have to be worried about, okay, what impact does it have? My big thing, though, is I think the only thing that we really, really need to be worried about is one that has a variant breakthrough. Even if one does have a lot more transmission, if we get 75% of our population here in Ontario vaccinated, which I think we will, I actually think we're going to have up to around 85% of our population vaccinated um, the only thing that we really, really need to worry about 
is about a COVID-19 variant, which is vaccine breakthrough. That's really the only thing which is going to really, really stop the progress which we've had recently. Well, let me ask you about that, because that was another story from last week that uh, kind of got glossed over because of the good news announcement, I guess, here in Ontario. But there was talk about possibly a third vaccine shot, especially, amazingly, for Pfizer, which we thought was probably one of the most effective of, of the vaccines. Uh, it, now, it's been kind of, you know, the CDC and others have, have said, no, 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 we, 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 but they said it, which tells me this, there, are, there are concerns here about how efficacious this is towards some of these variants. Is, is this a growing concern, or was that just somebody's misstatement? What, what's your read on that? Well, I'll just speak from a numbers perspective, and I think what we've seen is that in Israel, when you look at um, Pfizer there, um, at the start, what they were seeing is that it was about 97% efficacious in stopping hospitalization. Um, what they've seen a few months later is that it's dropped to 93%. Now, that drop may just be you know, a statistical anomaly. It's not a significant drop at all, but we do expect that eventually, not sure exactly how long it'll take, but antibodies will wane over time. So a booster shot will have to happen sometime. I think the issue is, you know, we don't really know when it will have to happen. We don't know the long-term impact of, you know, of, um, you know, what impact, not just the vaccine will have on antibodies, but what impact the vaccine will have on things like hospitalizations, which can't really be related back to the antibody count. So I think that's going to be something which we are going to have to follow this next little bit. But for sure, in the future, booster shots will be a thing 100%. So this is really just a variation of a discussion we had six, seven months ago, that uh, this may actually be an annual thing like a flu shot then. Exactly. I don't think we need to be worried about it at all. Um, and even the you know CDC, from what I know, clarified that statement too, to say something along the lines of it was for those that had only received one dose. I'm not sure exactly what they were getting to there. Um, but myself, I wouldn't read into it much. I think we all know, we've all known for quite some time, we need a booster shot. I don't know when that will be. I think that's going to be the thing that you know we do have to follow the data on. When is it most effective to have that booster shot so that we maximize coverage of that booster shot? But 100% in the future, sometime, we will need a booster shot. If you go back to your childhood, this is something that happened on a pretty regular basis. I mean, vaccines and booster shots and things of this nature. Uh, I go back to the, the late 50s, early 60s, you know, uh, eradicating polio and, and diphtheria and a number of other things. And it's it's something that we kind of got used to. And I guess we got away from it, maybe because we just figured those things are not going to be much of a threat anymore. Uh, but this is really the way that you fight these things, isn't it? Just to kind of keep the antibodies up in case because uh, you don't know which variant may sh- pop up. It's not, not unlike the flu every year we don't know what kind of flus are going to affect us every year too for sure and i think that's the issue with vaccines and also good public health that if you have good public health and you reduce cases then a lot of people say well what did we have to do a b and c when we saw cases drop off well that was because of good public health a lot of people now may be asking what do we have to vaccinate against a b and c when we don't have a b and c well we don't have a b and c because we've vaccinated against them so it becomes a very very tough sell to some groups of people sometimes because they've got that argument about we don't need to do so because this is true. Well, it's true because we've done this. And I think that's really important to note that, you know, our vaccination programs from way back when are why we're not dealing with some of the issues that we would certainly be dealing with had we not had a solid vaccination program. 
I guess I guess we saw an example of that a few years ago. I'll use the example of the polio vaccine. Uh, third world nations, of course, have been doing that on a regular basis to young children. And I guess a few of them stopped doing it, figured out, ah, you know, we really. And there was a, a spike, a rather troubling spike all of a sudden in that. So if and I think guess we've learned our lesson here that if we do let our guard down, uh, it, it doesn't go up. It doesn't really go well, does it? No, for sure. And we saw the same thing actually in New York City a few years back with measles as well. So, yeah. you know, we, we've seen a lot of case studies where we've let our guard down. And that's why I think it's not a bad idea now to be talking about boosters um, and just, you know, like letting people know that, yeah, you will have to get a booster. Um, it, it will become something. I'm not sure whether it will be annually every two years, whatever it is, but it will become something like a flu shot because what from what we know, like COVID-19, will become endemic. It'll be around for a very, very long time. I, I, I guess we're kind of moving into the field of epidemiology here too, but you know, we're going to get the flu vaccine every year. Uh, it looks like we're going to have to get a booster for these uh, coronaviruses. Uh, any possibility down the road, do you see, Ryan, that, that we might be able to combine those two and get one super shot that's going to look after both? Yeah, I certainly think one region, which I'm a big advocate for attacking right now, um, is actually school-age kids. And if we know school-age kids get a lot of their vaccination doses at around grade 7, which is around the age of 12, which, as we know, is the, um, is the age now for uh, like vaccine acceptance here in our um, like country. We can vaccinate um, students 12 and up. So I think we should really focus our energy on a solid vaccination campaign so that we can um, like tear up, whether it be at the same time, whether it be throughout the year, whatever it is, but so that we can make sure that, you know, families know the grade seven year is the vaccination year. It's when you get all these vaccines and now we're going to be throwing the COVID-19 vaccine into the mix as well um, for those, the grade seven students, many of which are 11 right now, but will be turning 12 when school starts in September. What are the chances of, of a program like that being successful? I mean, government's going to have to get involved. There's going to have to be a huge uh, uh, public relations and, and information uh, campaign that's going to go on there. Uh, but the other problem, though, is, as I see it, is we as humans tend to, to forget about things unless there's an imminent danger. We saw the imminent danger with what we've gone through in the last 14, 15 months here, and we said, okay, we got to be vaccinated. But do, do, is there a concern here that we may let our guard down again when these numbers continue to stay low? For sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's why, um, you know, we need to make sure that we have these programs in place. And I use the grade seven one as an example. My son's actually going into grade eight right now. Um, and, you know, his um, school was actually was asking for his uh, vaccination records. And we realized we didn't get his grade seven vaccine done. And everyone was like, well, that's OK, because normally the public health unit would go into the schools and would get the grade seven vaccinations done at that time. And I think mm -hmm. that's how it was rolled out. You would actually go into the schools. You would make sure students and parents understood. So it's something which the public health units have already done with the other vaccines. Now we would just be adding on COVID-19 onto that mix. So it's a very, very easy way to get the COVID-19 vaccine into that Legage group, which as it stands right now, will have no antibodies against COVID-19 unless they've been affected before. Quick sec, I got a couple of seconds left here. I want to ask you one other question. Uh, the, the good doctor, when he made the announcement last week, uh, suggested that uh, there is no phase four of the reopening. This is phase three, uh, and from here we just kind of, you know, drop everything. Uh, is is there an anticipation that that's going to happen sooner than later because of this vaccination rate? Well, it's going to be interesting because what we're seeing is that um, when when we ask the whole retail environment, you know, what what will they do 
once the mask mandates become dropped. We're learning that stores are not going to be dropping mask mandates. They want to continue to use sanitizer. They want to continue to do things like that. So it's the attitude um, of a lot of these retail environments that they don't want these restrictions dropped. And even if they are, they will still ask their employees. They will still ask customers to remain masked at, at the same time. So I think that if we move to this phase four, it needs to be very, very well linked to numbers. We need to make sure that we give very, very clear instructions because we, if we don't have everybody on board, we're really going to be stuck in this quasi kind of a phase three, phase four for a very, very long time. We saw that in Alberta last week where they, of course, lifted all of the restrictions, including the masking, and uh, quite a few people, we covered that story last week, quite a few people in the retail sector are still asking, they're demanding, but asking, they'll keep the mask on for the next little while, and I think a lot of people are of the same ilk. Ryan, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Rabbi. You take it easy. See you later. You too. Hang in there and stay well. Ryan Imgrud, uh, biostatistician, keeping uh, an eye on the numbers here for us. And, of course, the, the medical officers of health are doing the same sort of thing. But uh, uh, Friday, just a few days from now, we move into the next phase. And I know a lot of people are getting very excited about that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Despite receiving over 1,000 correspondences calling for the Sir John A. McDonald statue to be removed from downtown Hamilton, a city council committee last week decided to keep it right where it is. The vote was three to two, very close vote, and uh, the whole council is going to have to deal with this a little bit later on. Here's what Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger had to say. The, you know, the path to reconciliation is through consultation and collaboration not through destruction of uh, artifacts and monuments. Well, uh, Mayor's opinion, uh, certainly not shared by an awful lot of people uh, in this community based on the reaction we've seen over the last little while. So what should council do? And, uh, well, let's do an assessment as to how they've handled this uh, very controversial issue so far. Pleased to welcome back to the program Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, who's been following this very closely. Uh, Laura, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Were you surprised by that vote? It was, it's only a committee. It was only three to two, but it, uh, it, it kind of gives us a barometer as to where some of the councillors are on this. Well, they say in, I guess, politics, it's certainly in public relations, if you can't win an argument on content, you make an argument on process. And so while I wasn't surprised that they went with a process argument on such an important and to many, many people clear issue, uh, you know, it's disappointing. It was disappointing because of how they had the discussion. Some of the things that they said, it just it felt so frustrating to see their quotes, to hear what they said, to see how they, they said, no, essentially, whatever this statue means or is doing to Indigenous people, we have a process to review because, heaven forbid, we go ahead with this action and then the slippery slope, you know, then what's next? Dundas, then what's next? Then what's next? The, the whole conversation was one that did not for a moment, in my mind, except for, of course, the, the few councillors who voted to remove the statue, even the compromise to temporarily take it away. Uh, the whole conversation did not reflect the moment Canada is in did not reflect the understanding that most Canadians are coming to of not just our dark past, as they're calling it, but the current racism in our society. And it certainly did not respect what is happening and the pain with Indigenous people. And so when it was about what council was feeling, um, but not about what they were feeling in this moment and the significance of this request to remove the statue, that was what was painful, Bill. I wasn't surprised. But as a Canadian, as a Hamiltonian, I was ashamed, and it was painful. 
I, I share your concern because I also was, was somewhat surprised by the process here. It, it seemed to me as if they were trying to categorize in this, this is, as the same sort of thing when they want to name a park after a counselor or somebody like that. Yeah, there, there is a process for that. Yeah, you have to go to committee, there's some input, et cetera, et cetera, and delegations. Uh, but that's different and apart, apart from what's going on. You know, we're not naming anything after Sir John A. McDonald. There's a statue of him right downtown that everybody sees on a, on a daily, weekly basis, however they go down there. Do you not think that council understands the gravity of the situation and the immediacy of something like this? I don't think that they do. And just a couple of points on this. I mean, we know it's, a, it's an absolute fact, in spite of the trolling I've been getting this weekend on social media, that Sir John A. Macdonald was a white supremacist. He said things and did things and handled the Indian file at the time, as they referred to it, directly. He did things that were terrible, and we know that. It's, it's in the history books. So I had somebody over uh, during the, the Euro match yesterday. We got in this discussion at the break. And the person said to me, you know, what, what happened in Canada to Indigenous people should be taught in school. And I said, absolutely. But a statue set on a pedestal is meant for us to look up at someone. It's meant for us to revere them. And this particular statue, the individual, said that Indigenous parents were savages, that even if they taught their children to read and write, their children would have been taught by savages. This is a person who was for a starvation policy to get the railroad built across the prairies. <laughs> so this, there's, I said to the person, if someone had said that about your culture, if somebody had said that and had tried to starve out your culture to build a railroad, and it was on the record, would you want to look up to them on a piece of public land? And they thought about it for a moment, and they thought about you know, all the atrocious figures that, that they had known about when they lived in Europe when they were younger, and they said, no, actually, I wouldn't want that statue there on public land. So this is not about not learning history. This is not about not understanding the other things that Sir John A. Macdonald did as the father of Canada. It's about not looking up to somebody who did such terrible things and caused such pain to Indigenous people. And I'll bring up one other point that really struck me on this. It was when um, John Stewart was talking about these statues of General Lee in the South, and you know, one of which we saw removed from Charlottesville this weekend, mm -hmm. Charlottetown this weekend. And he said, you know, it's like wallpaper of racism for people who were impacted by that white supremacist. Just because he as a white person hadn't noticed it, he, he realized what it means. So for Indigenous people, there is a racist who did great harm to their family for generations up in our main area, main public place. That is unfair, and it should come down. That statue should come down. There's a, a still, because I've seen some of the comments on social media and some of the trolling against you too, by the way, after some of your remarks about this, because uh, you've been quite vocal about this, that they still want to believe the sanitized version of this. They, they're indifferent to the fact of what happened with residential schools and, and with Aboriginals and Indigenous peoples to begin with. All they do is look at the, the nation-building aspect of this and say, this is what makes him a great man. Uh, your point about how much of a, a hands-on policy that this whole thing was, uh, people tend to forget, yes, John A. Macdonald was one of the architects, if not the major architect, along with Cartier, of this country. Yes, he was our first Prime Minister. But do people also remember that while he was serving as Prime Minister, he was also the Indian Affairs Minister? So this, this was right on his desk. This is right him. This is this is John A. Macdonald directing these policies. And some of what he said in Parliament was, as I just mentioned, terrible. Some of what he said in Parliament, people looked back even at the time. There's a great National Post article on all of this 
um, where they realized that what he was doing with his hands-on approach in the prairies for this great build of this railroad, his hands-on approach was far more brutal than some of the rhetoric that he saved for, you know, the, the political class that he was talking to. Some of what they were doing was actually taking over some reserves into federal control, assigning people to look after the uh, what they called the Indians, and keeping them in a policy of starvation, where they had one one family had seven of their children die. They you know they saw populations on reserves that one go down by twelve. I think it was twelve hundred people. I mean they were watching children starve. And if you can't get that and say I shouldn't be looking up at this person as I'm walking through downtown Hamilton, maybe down maybe Hamilton councillors can for one second think about Scotland, where Sir John A. Macdonald is from. Scotland, this past weekend, took him off of their historic sites because of what he did with residential schools in Canada. Scotland said, we cannot support this because of what he did. So what was the process for Scotland to remove Sir John A. Macdonald from their historic sites? They didn't hide behind a process argument bill. They removed him when it became clear um, that, that Canada was, was reacting to what he had done. So, I mean, if, if if Scotland can do it, how on earth can Hamilton Council justify the fact that, you know, there's a process of reviewing these kind of things locally, and so therefore we're not going to do it? And when the mayor says that reconciliation is a discussion, a consultation with Indigenous people, well, really, because it certainly sounded like the feelings of the mayor and councillors and what they thought about racism, reconciliation, was more of a priority than the feelings of Indigenous people in this moment. And I couldn't imagine, as an Indigenous person, wanting to sit down and have a collaborative discussion with the mayor and council after some of the comments were made. I mean, the mayor said, oh, well, Sir John A. Macdonald was apparently a drunk and a bumbling fool, but, you know, I'm not married to him, I've never met him, we have a pot. What on earth has that got to do with anything? Look at what we've talked about for the last five minutes. That information is readily available, what he did, and his record to any Canadian who wants to see it. Our mayor and council should have looked at it. If Scotland can take action, why on earth can't Hamilton just remove a statue from a pedestal? Because too many of us, and including some of these people on Hamilton City Council, frankly, are very selective in what they want to focus on and what they want to believe and not believe. And th there's a, a much broader picture, as you've already described, about what went on there, much more than we ever learned when we were kids and going to school and, and taught about, you know, the days of confederation and all this stuff and you know the railroad and what a great accomplishment uh, the stories about how all those things were accomplished are, are quite frankly disturbing and i mean i saw a couple of posts over the weekend uh, about the residential schools and the 700 graves that were discovered a couple of weeks ago and, and the, the writer i can't remember and i wouldn't dignify the, the comments with their name anyway because they usually on, on social media they don't use their real names anyway but they were saying look at you know there was the, all kinds of epidemics they probably just died of that what's the big deal well <laughs> that may well be the case that some of them died from that but will also is do you don't want to talk about these stories of abuse we've heard from the survivors of, of what went on in these facilities and the way that they were treated the way they were basically denigrated by these people that said you you're, you're animals you you know you you don't deserve this you your language is awful your religion is awful this is the kind of thing that we're put up with and we wouldn't tolerate that now why do we tolerate it in our historical perspective well do we do tolerate it now? We I mean, we have racism in Canada currently. We have white supremacy on the rise. I was moderating a no hate summit for the city of Hamilton, where local and international experts 
in May. We're describing exactly how bad it is in Canadian culture. And I think that's one thing we have to always be cautious of. You know, because people use the argument, well, there were different standards back then, so how can we possibly take down a statue, you know, about somebody back then? Well, we can do it because it's about our culture now and what we understand and what our values are now. Uh, and our values now should say that somebody who, who managed a portfolio of a starvation policy on Indigenous people, where they fed them poison grist from mills, where they deliberately were trying to get rid of them to put through a railroad and started residential schools, should not have a statue in, a, in our major public place in Hamilton. I mean, that's just basic. But Bill, we have white supremacy on the rise in this country. And the, there was even somebody affiliated with a group that spoke on the issue at emergency committee that was able to be heard, uh, which caused a lot of outrage in the community when that was realized. We had issues with white supremacists working for City Hall that was only found out by a national vice news, did an investigation and found out. We had white supremacists in front of City Hall every Saturday shouting garbage and it took city leaders to, like myself and others to show up because council wouldn't show up and stand up for our city. So this is not just the past, this is current, this is now and the conversation and the way they discuss the Sir John A. Macdonald statue tells me very clearly that either they're not interested in understanding the history, they're not interested in the real moment Canada is in and the real kind of society that we need to have and that our Indigenous, not our Indigenous people, Indigenous people deserve. Uh, if they don't get that, then I, I'm very concerned that we're not going to get rid of the other issues around hate and racism that are brewing in Canada. We are still statistically the uh, capital of hate in this country. So this is a very serious, far-ranging discussion that they had at Emergency Services Committee, more than just about this one statute. It's about their attitudes around these issues. So where do we go in a situation like this? I mean, if, if we want to start looking at the McDonald's and, well, Dundas and, and Ryerson and, and go down the list, Queen Victoria, for heaven's sakes, and some they've torn down her statue in some places. I mean, she if you look at, at the statistics and what went on, you, there's an argument to be made that she was complicit in, in much of what was going on here, too. Uh, and, and I'm not suggesting we just whitewash this and say, well, you know, they were all like that back then, but there has to be a serious discussion about this. But does tearing down the statues solve this? Does it, does it make it go away? Is it part of the process? What, what do you see here? Well, of course, it doesn't solve it, but it is an important gesture. It's not just symbolic in nature. It is an important gesture to say we are not going to give public space to a racist, white supremacist who had a policy of starving children and of ripping 150,000 family, families apart, children apart from their families into residential school programs, industrial school programs, to, and I'm using their language of the time, you know, get the Indian out of the child. I mean, we that's a start, Bill. And these arguments that we can't do anything because then we'll have to do everything and, oh, how it will divide. When council said that, or the mayor said that this will divide the city, no, incorrect, actually. This will begin healing in this city, this city that is rife with hate incidents, this city that has indigenous people in it who are suffering. It will begin to heal. What is divisive is listening to a council that is tone deaf to the seriousness of this moment in Canada and what we have to do about it. I'm the child of generations of, of um, empire loyalists. But if Queen Victoria had done these things and, and the Indigenous people feel that Queen Victoria represents something horrific that was done to them, a cultural genocide, then I'm all about continuing to learn about Queen Victoria in the books and in a museum, but not having her statues 
up on pedestals in our public places. Let's look at them one at a time and let's do the right thing. This isn't a process argument. This is an argument for the kind of culture and society we need to have going forward. All right. So with the revelations of, of what we're starting to learn and probably have known for some time, some of us anyway, how do we teach our history going forward? Well, I think this conversation around removing statues is a big start. I, I would have never had this conversation during a Euro Cup game if there wasn't a, a demand for a statue to be coming down. My kids have taught me more than I ever knew about Canadian history just in the last few months in discussions around these issues. The residential schools, the revelation, the revelation and it was to me because I wasn't educated on this, um, of mass graves and more and more are going to come. Uh, we're going to find out more and more. I mean, this should be a blight on Canada's reputation globally. This should be something that we are doing everything that we can to address immediately. Within a hundred days, know exactly where the bodies are buried and how many children and families suffered. I mean, Bill, this is just the start. So how do we do it? We do it by doing the most obvious things first, removing these statues of racists who hurt indigenous people and were part of cultural genocide from our public places. And then we look at how can we have robust education? I think council needs to be educated based on the quality of their discussion, right? And I'm not saying I'm better than the councillors. I'm trying to learn on this issue. I've been candid about that. But are they trying to learn? Or are they falling behind some process argument that even, as I said, Scotland is not hiding behind when it comes to Sir John A. Macdonald? So it starts with these actions. It starts with concrete demonstrations that we care and that we're willing to learn and to change. And it includes... Of course, consultation with Indigenous people, because they are the ones who understand the damage, and they are the ones who have the answers, and we need to be listening and hearing them, period. And again, I'm going to finish this off the way we started it, and again, on process, and the way that some politicians, I think some of the ones on Hamilton Council too, tend to hide behind this, you know, sending this off to the naming committee is, is really just trying to find a place to park this for the next little while. They've, they've got to make a decision on this sooner than later, I mean, and they've got to stand up and be counted on this. Yeah, I hope that they listen. I mean, I know that Councillor uh, Nan brought forward the motion and, and said very clearly, like, it's not about your pain, Council. You're not suffering, right? Like, she, she was trying to, like, wake them up to what they were doing. Councillor Wilson apologized on behalf of Council to Indigenous people. The Hamilton Spectator essentially said they hoped no Indigenous people were even paying attention because of how badly the whole thing was handled. And, you know, some of the other councillors, I know Brad Clark tried to come up with some sort of a compromise to park the statue for a bit, um, but the rest of the councillors have to re really rethink this. The thousand letters that came from citizens, some other community leaders who have been very vocal over the weekend at how disgusted they are by the conversation, they have to rethink this and say, did we miss the moment? Did we not step up? Did we not understand? Let's, let's, let's admit we made a mistake here and let's do the right thing and to really do something about reconciliation instead of just hiding behind process. We deserve better than this, Bill. Council, uh, the whole council will make a decision on this in the next couple of days, and we'll certainly talk about uh, that decision when and if it happens. Laura, as always, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Bill. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Continuing on the theme, I guess, of, of uh, what's happened over the last uh, 10 to 14 days in this country vis-a-vis -vis Indigenous peoples and uh, what happened last week specifically uh, with a couple of appointments, high-profile appointments, uh, both to Indigenous women and one other uh, rather high-profile Indigenous woman who decided not to continue in her pursuit of politics. But uh, let's focus on Roseanne Archibald, first of all. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he's looking forward to working in 
Roseanne Archibald, who is the newly elected National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. The Prime Minister uh, made those comments uh, just after her election victory. I look forward to working with Chief Archibald uh, on the issues that matter so deeply, not just to Indigenous Canadians and First Nations people, but indeed all Canadians. The challenge of reconciliation is one that we all uh, need to step up on. Interesting when you, you look at the, the broader picture here about what happened uh, with, of course, the uh, the election uh, of uh, Miss Archibald uh, as uh, Assembly First Nations Chief, uh, also Mary Simon uh, to be our next Governor General, and then of course you juxtapose that against uh, the announcement from uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Richard Brennan, former journalist from Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, hope you had a great weekend. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, I did. We all just got back from vacation, so I'm uh, rested, and here we go. Ready and willing to go. Well, you didn't miss anything while you were gone. Yes, you did, but I mean, <laughs> this, these days it's, it's just going at rapid speed here. Uh, and one person characterized what happened last week vis-a-vis -vis Indigenous rights and, and, and high profiles as uh, two steps forward and one step back. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Yes, correct, it is. And uh, I think that was uh, Susan Delacorte, I believe, that said that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and she's absolutely right. You know, appointing uh, Mary Simon was a very good choice. A lot of people said, well, that's a little rich right now, but they have to remember Mary Simon was on the list two times ago for Governor General when uh, uh, David Johnson was the pick. She was on that list then. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's the right time, and I, she's certainly qualified, She's and she's done a great many things in her life, so she'll be a good Governor General. I don't, I have no doubt about that. Certainly, a, a step above the last one, and and with the the, you know, the curious one is with uh, Roseanne Archibald. She uh, she's got some really good ideas, and you know, in terms of opening up the way chiefs are elected, and you know, just bringing some kind of shining a light on how things are done, and in you know, among the uh, uh, AFN. But she only got about a third of the votes, if I stand, mm -hmm. I stand corrected on it. If uh, from all the chiefs across the country, she only got a third of them in her support. So that's a tough role right there, not to have that kind of sweeping support everyone would like to get when they're running for something. But you know what? If there's a person that can do it, I, from, all, uh, from all I hear, she's going to be the one. Now, Judy... Wilson-Raybould, there's a bit of a tragic story there, political story for her. I, I think she, you know, she may have not served herself well in some points, you know, being being uh, obstreperous at some times. But on the other hand, she was doing what she thought was best, and I don't think she got a, a, a very good shake from the uh, uh, Trudeau government. And now she's gonna, she's not going to run again. So I, I think that that's too bad because the woman certainly brought a, a lot of uh, a lot of tradition with her to when she was attorney general, and certainly the tradition of the, uh, the First Nations issues. And uh, she's gone. So there's a like you say, two steps forward, one back. Let's dissect some of this stuff. Uh, the Mary Simon thing, I agree with totally, by the way. You know, as soon as uh, she was announced last week, I think the first impression a lot of people had is what took them so long? I mean, this, this is an eminently qualified individual. And, and as you say, she'd been on the list before, uh, and her time has come, and that's wonderful. And I, I agree. I think she, she understands the office and what needs to be done, but she also understands that she can have a voice. I know some people were uh, a little befuddled by some of her comments that suggested that she's going to be nonpartisan and not going to, you know, criticize the government, but at the same time, 
still going to speak out. You can do both without criticizing the government you, in, the, in the context of saying this is what needs to be done instead of chastising the government for not doing it. We already know that they're not doing enough. I think the government knows they're not doing enough. So I think she's going to be a very strong voice. Uh, but the other element I wanted to bring into this, of course, is, is with the Assembly of First Nations and the controversy that goes on. No matter who is elected chief there, Badger, there's always going to be controversy because they just don't seem to speak with one voice, and that's always been a problem. You have not ever seen politics to you see politics in, in, in uh, the FN or, or you know right across the country with the uh, various uh, communities it it is tough they if they really believe and this is a good thing i suppose but they really believe that everybody should have a voice and and in so doing nothing seems to get done and and that's plagued that's plagued uh, uh, native politics for forever like i say it's a good thing to have everybody uh have a voice but you got to make a decision at some point and that's and that's they, you know you can talk to any leaders that have you know uh, led the F- afn will tell you that they can't ever seem to agree on anything and that in itself is a huge problem and it's, it's a bit ongoing, and I understand that you have to weigh that against the idea of there's always going to be divergent opinions. I don't expect to speak with one voice to, uh, in all issues. There's going to be some controversy about how things should get done. But it's very difficult, I guess, to sit down and talk about policy and things of this nature uh, when, you know, one group is saying this and, and somebody else within the, the that same organization is saying something else. Uh, who do you talk to? Who do you sit down to? should be the chief, but does the chief have the support? And, and, and in her case, with only Less, as you say, less than a third of the votes in in that leadership race uh, for for chief, uh, does she have that mandate? Well, that's it'll take a strong person, and and I I believe that she is to push back and, and say, you know, this is this is the way I was elected, and this is the way it's going to run. I mean, you you, you can't you can't. It's a bit of an, an iron fist in a velvet glove approach, but you have to. At some point, say, hey, "Look, at, I'm the boss, and this is going. This is the way it's going to be." But you can't, you can't do that all the time. Obviously, you have to. If you're going to be a leader, you have to be able to get people on your side, and that's where her first job, what her first job should be, and that is to get people who didn't vote for her on her side, and 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 lay out an agenda that they can sign on to. Well, let's talk about that agenda, because one of the things she talked about before she was elected, and she even mentioned in her comments after uh, the election, uh, was reform within the organization. And uh, she's made some accusations about financial improprieties by some members. Uh, you better have a strong mandate if you're going to start going in that, down in that direction, because you're going, to, you're going to get a lot of people ticked off and a lot of people angry at you. I think she described the whole thing as opaque. And, and, and that's, yeah, there's just, there's no clarity into a, a lot of it, you know, some people will say, well, you can't, you can't, you can't, uh, you know, accuse the First Nations of doing this or doing that, and, and I'm not. But it sh- there should be some kind of clarity as to where the money, how the money is spent, where it goes, and who's dealing it out. And I, and I, Archibald, I think she's right to point a finger and say, we we have to open this up, and we have to make it absolutely clear what's going on here, and that will be that will be her 
toughest challenge by far, because a lot of the First Nations say what we do with the money we're given is our business and nobody else. And she's going to take a different view, and she's going to say, "No, we have to. We all have to know for the you know to the betterment of the everyone, every Native Indigenous person across this country, how they benefit benefit or don't benefit from the." the money that's coming from the federal government. And, boy, that's, that's going to be a tough one. I, I, you know, if she, can, if she can get over that mountain, that's, that's, going, that's going to be, uh, a, you know, a terrific uh, win for her if she can. But, boy, i got my doubts. Got a couple of minutes left. I want to circle back, if I could, to uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, our friend John Iverson wrote about this uh, in the National Post the other day. And I'm sure you saw the quote. He was talking about Raybould and, and the sources that you guys use when you're writing columns oftentimes don't want to be named, but they'll they'll give you some pretty solid inside information. And here's the quote. It says, uh, Jody never mastered it that it's a team game. She really frustrated her colleagues who wanted to help them. McKenna, LeBlanc, and Carr were all fed up by the end of the 2018 about the bickering with Bennett, and it was awful, uh, which tells me that she was the an outsider, even within that cabinet. Uh, it was, was, there a, was she ostracized for that? Do you have to play team? Do you have to be a team player to, to get anything done? You've covered this for years and years and years at the federal and provincial level. Uh, what, what's going on there? Well, Bill, in, in anything, you have to know when to pick your battles. You can't be fighting with your colleagues all the time. And, and I think that's where, that's where her, her problems lie. She just... She was strong-willed and tremendous, but she had a, had a vision of what she wanted to do. That's great. But you can, you can fulfill your vision by getting people to row in the same direction that you are. And I, I believe, and from what, everything I've read, that, that was her problem, that she just couldn't seem to master the ability to work with the team. And that's that was her undoing in the end. And again, I don't think she got a fair shake uh, all altogether. But it's it's a it's a two way uh, highway here because she's got to give. And there's there's uh, you know there's some take too. And that was the problem that you know and that was the issue I should say underlying issue of what happened here is that there was a there just wasn't a meeting of the minds. And and she did some great work. She. You know, she brought in, you know, the cannabis stuff, and there was other major bills that she was able to push through the House of Commons. And, you know, that was no easy, no easy uh, task, but she did it. But again, her ability to work with people or not work with people, that was, that was an issue. Richard Brennan, always a pleasure, uh, Badger. Thanks for this. Uh, welcome back. Uh, good to have you back in the fray, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. Okay, Bill. Thanks a lot. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.